Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. Birds come in all sorts of sizes and shapes, but in North America, I think there are a few birds that are more enamored, more just revered than bluebirds. You hear there are bluebird societies. People get all excited about bluebirds. I certainly get excited about bluebirds. And bluebirds are thrushes. They are more like robins than our blue jays or our stellar jays, that sort of thing, which people think bluebirds are probably related. No, bluebirds are a thrush in the same family as our Swainson's thrushes and our robins and our varied thrushes and that sort of thing. Uh, so they're a small thrush and obviously are blue-colored. And a lot of you probably know that there's no blue pigment in birds' feathers. You'd think, how can they be blue without blue pigment? It turns out that it's really all about the keratin and little air bubbles in the keratin that refract light and reflect it just right so that only the blue light reflects black back out and that the other colors of light in natural sunlight are absorbed into the feathers. And so the birds look blue, but if you look for blue pigment, there really isn't any. But... Bluebirds are a bird that has, as I said, been loved by many people, and there are bluebird societies. And bluebirds have been one of the birds that have been especially uh, helped by artificial nest boxes. In the mid-20th century, bluebirds became much less common throughout most of the North American range. And that was at least in part due to competition from introduced species like house sparrows and European starlings that also used nest cavities and outcompeted the bluebirds. In some areas, the, there's a theory that Actually, it's more tree swallows and violet green swallows that are in competition, and that the tree sw the swallows from urban areas were outcompeted in the cities and towns by birds like house sparrows, which then drove the sp the swallows out to where the bluebirds were and outcompeted the bluebirds for their nest cavities. But whatever reason, we think that the introduced species played a big role. Well, nest boxes came to the rescue. Uh, they figured out, researchers figured out, that certain specifications of a box with just the right size hole and just the right size openings and just the right size cavity put at the right height in the right places could be specifically used by bluebirds and much less likely and successfully used by other species. So they started making bluebird homes. And bluebird homes turned into bluebird trails. They learned if you put the, the boxes a certain distance apart and make a series of them in the right habitat, bluebirds could propagate and the populations could expand. And there have been huge successes with bluebird trails throughout North America. Our western bluebirds are a little bit different than mountain and eastern bluebirds in that they don't favor big, wide open spaces. They prefer uh, areas with some trees and some overstory, at least inter interspersed, edge habitats and especially oak savanna habitats, things like that. So boxes put in that sort of area can be very successful. So my guest today is Kathleen Foley. Kathleen is the leader of the San Juan Bluebird Restoration Project. It is a project to bring Western bluebirds back to their historically native range on the San Juan Islands, especially San Juan Island itself, and has been fairly successful in relocating birds from elsewhere in Washington to San Juan Island and helping them develop a population there. You'll hear the story of that and lots more today with my guest, Kathleen Foley, on the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 101. Help me welcome Kathleen Foley.
Kathleen, welcome to the Bird Bander Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. This is a busy time of year for you with the San Juan Islands Western Bluebird Restoration Project, Reintroduction Project, excuse me. Uh, how's that going this year? Well, we're off to a pretty good start. We've got eight different pairs of birds on nests and um, all in sort of various stages of, um, of nesting activity. Some are on eggs and some are still nest building. We've got quite a few that are still kind of trying to make up their mind exactly where they're going to they're going to set up home. But um, but yeah, I'm feeling pretty, pretty positive about the start of the season. Is this a fairly typical start for the last two or three years or is it seeming better or what would you say? Do you have a feeling yet? Um, it's it feels like it's a late uh, a late start. Um, and, you know, just talking to some other people in the region that, you know, it's not not just with bluebirds, but uh, with a lot of nesting species that things were definitely delayed this year. I don't know um, how much, you know, the weather has played a factor, but uh, normally we'd be, you know, maybe starting to see some of our, our first birds, um, you know, getting close to hatching out by now, but it feels like we're a couple of weeks behind. Yeah. Okay. Feels like that here too. Uh, I did a big day last uh, Sunday with some Pierce uh, County birders and uh, we struggled with our passerines, with our neotropic uh, migrants. Uh, we just yeah. had trouble getting anything. So I yeah. think uh, we, we set our date this year a little early, hoping to get some of the lingering winter birds and still get mm -hmm. the migrants. And it didn't work out so well for that. But mm -hmm. yeah, I think you might be right. Some birds might be late showing up. The bluebirds, uh, some of them migrate. Do any of them overwinter there? Yeah, um, and that's a more recent phenomenon. Um, it seems like the last five to six years, we've been having a small, uh, you know, kind of subgroup of birds that, that tend to stick around throughout the winter. Of course, they might be making, you know, short foraging journeys um, over to Whidbey Island or, um, you know, maybe back down to JBLM. You know, there, there are definitely some that, you know, we're, we're seeing almost every month through the winter time. So you band your birds too, I bet. So you, you yeah. kind of have a feel whether they're your nesting birds or some interlopers that might be stopping by. Exactly. Yeah, we, we, do, um, we do band our birds um, as uh, nestlings. Uh, before they fledge and um, they're fitted with four bands so one uh, aluminum fish and wildlife band and then three colored bands that all have unique color combinations to mm -hmm. each bird so that we can ID them in the field and uh, this year we, we've had a couple interesting developments we've had several birds uh, that have showed up without any leg bands which uh, indicates you know one of two things either they are net uh, you know, returning nestlings from um, nests perhaps that we did not know about mm -hmm. on the island. And so I wasn't able to get to them to, to ban them. Um, or they're possibly recruits from outside this population. And, um, you know, either scenario is um, an exciting development. It's either good news or good news. You just don't yes. know what good news. Yes. That's great. So Kathleen, I'm going to have you go back. First of all, how long have you been involved in this project? Were you there from the get-go or were, did you join it partway through? I have been here from the get-go. Okay. Take us back uh, to uh, how it started and, and what even made you think you could pull it off? How did it come about? Well, it was interesting. I had been talking with Bob Altman from the American Bird Conservancy while well, he worked for ABC at the time. Um, some of your listeners 
may know about Bob or have met him and hopefully are also familiar with American Burr Conservancy. And I had been talking to Bob about a, a different project um, and I was just doing some consulting with him and he just uh, sort of out of the blue one day said, hey, Kathleen, what do you, what do you think about doing reintroduction of Western bluebirds on San Juan Island? And um, of course, being a bird, a bird enthusiast, I was like, well, of course, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> what, what's involved? What do we got to do? And um, anyways, Bob had been looking for um, uh, a regional partner in the San Juans to, to maybe um, uh, conduct this reintroduction and hadn't really made connections with anybody in particular in the San Juans. And so once we had, had established a relationship, he knew that I worked for uh, the San Juan Preservation Trust, which is a uh, land trust based here in the San Juan Archipelago. And uh, we work on private land conservation. Um, he decided that that might be a good partnership. And so we started talking and then he brought in Gary Slater with Eco Studies Institute. And uh, Gary had uh, some experience doing reintroductions with eastern bluebirds in the Florida Everglades. And he thought Gary would be um, a great addition to the team and, and serve as our um, sort of our technical advisor overseeing the actual reintroduction process. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was, you know, we were the primary sort of coordinators of the project. We also involved um, our local Audubon uh, chapter up here in the islands. Um, who helped us out um, in, in the early stages of the project as well. And so with that into, that was about a year of planning. And, and in 2007, we got underway with our very first reintroductions. Okay. And you work with the biologists at JBLM, uh, Trent Base Lewis McCord. Maybe it was Fort Lewis then. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was Fort Lewis. <laughs> it was Fort Lewis. And, and yeah, we coordinated with the folks down there their biologists um, and Gary um, was instrumental in, in making those connections so that um, we could um, determine, you know, how many uh, adult birds we could, you know, safely take from that population to be, you know, our source population and um, just to kind of, you know, coordinate the best way to do this reintroduction successfully. So did you have a reason to think that the uh, that the adult, so you took adult birds. I thought you might've taken nestlings. I, adult birds, if you take them from one place, do they just nest where you take them or they don't just fly back to where they came from? How, how did, did you have a reason to think that would work? Well, it's, it's really, it's really interesting because Gary's experience with the Eastern bluebirds in the Everglades, that particular population is non-migratory and they had, um, you know, he had some protocols in mind. And of course, our Western bluebirds here historically are uh, migratory. And to the best of my knowledge, Ed, this was the first attempt at a reintroduction of a migratory passerine wow. in, in North America. Um, obviously, there's been other reintroductions. Um, you pioneer you. Holy <laughs> Very cool. Well, it, it, you know, so obviously that's fraught, right? So we, um, we had, we had a lot of things that we weren't sure 
exactly, you know, how well it would, it would happen or how well it would go. And, and so that first year was a little bit um, of a learning curve. We, oh boy, if I recall, I think we brought up, um, it was either seven, seven or nine pairs. My, that was a long time ago. So my memory is escaping me, but, um, but about half of those birds wound up flying right back to Fort Lewis, which is exactly what you would probably expect that they would do. And and this was after we only kept them in eight, we we built aviaries for them, temporary, you know, mobile aviaries um, Mm -hmm. to house them in. And we only kept them in there uh, for three or four days. And the thinking on that was that we didn't want them because of the stress and everything. We didn't want them to start sustaining feather damage or, or other things that may impact you know, breeding success. And so we let them go and, and some did stick around, but, uh, but many did leave um, and go right back to where they came from. So we sort of went back to the drawing board on that. The following year, we built larger aviaries and we kept them in there for longer. Mm-hmm. And we had a much higher success rate of the birds staying because we would look for them once they were in there, they were, were looking for signs of them wanting to, wanting to breed, you know, sure. they're, they're bringing nest material to the little nest box we would place inside the aviary. And, you know, we'd witness copulation and, you know, and so mm-hmm. we knew, okay, they're, they're ready to go. And they're so at least thinking about it, they're thinking about it. And so we would let them go. Um, of course, place uh, nest boxes right outside the a- aviary within, you know, visual distance for the birds. And mm-hmm. um, many times they would go right to one of those boxes and, and start setting up home. And so that was that definitely increased our rate of success. And then another strategy we tried a little later, you mentioned um, juveniles, is we would actually bring up entire family groups mm-hmm. from JBLM. So uh, a mated pair with young in the nest, and we would just bring the whole family up. And of right. course, that, that would really cement those adults here. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so we didn't have we had very few, I don't want to say we didn't have any, we had very few that, that actually disappeared that, you know, we, we don't know where they went to after release. Cool. So that was, uh, um, to kind of that's 14 years ago or 13 years ago, something yeah, like that. Yeah, so yeah. you've been doing this for a while. What yeah. sort of a population do you have uh, on, if this is pretty much all on San Juan Island, isn't it? Not on Orcas or other places. That's correct. We, started the reintroductions on San Juan Island. And that's because that's where the, the historical records of uh, Western bluebirds breeding in the islands um, are from San Juan Island and from Lopez Island. Now, that doesn't mean they weren't on other islands, but we just don't have the records of it. Sure. Um, so uh, we, we decided to focus it on San Juan and just given the, the logistics and the um, cost of doing these reintroductions um, uh, didn't make sense to kind of spread everything out on, on sure. different islands. And so we, we focused it all here. Now I did have, there was several years, um, we did have bluebirds on their own make their way to Lopez Island. Cool. Um, we did not have successful nesting there. That was, you know, kind of an interesting story but uh, they did, you know, make, at least make it there on their own, which, which was, you know, 
an exciting turn of events. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty much all of the birds on, on San Juan nesting in artificial boxes or are some using natural cavities? Well, I would really love to think that some of them are using natural cavities and that's perhaps where some of these unbanded birds that appear from time to time could mm -hmm. be coming from because there could have been, you know, one of our adult breeding pairs that, that found a natural cavity that we didn't know about. It's also likely that these birds may be finding nest boxes that aren't really what we would consider part of our, our you know, our sanctioned bluebird box uh, program, but maybe somebody's decorative box or something. There's no, no rule against putting up a bluebird box. Is That's, there's not, although we're really at the stage with this project that, um, well, first off, I, I would like to think that most people on San Juan Island at least have some sort of familiarity or at least heard of, even if they're not, you know, bird enthusiasts, sure. they may be aware of the project. And I, you know, do rely very heavily on the community to report their sightings um, mm -hmm. of these birds to me. I think there's a lot of folks that maybe assume that I know where they all are. <laughs> and, uh, and that's not entirely true. You know, we, we've definitely over the years, these birds are kind of showing the same patterns and the same, same preferences for where they're choosing their nesting sites. Sure. But it seems like every year there's, there's a pair that turns up in some place that I hadn't really expected. Nice. Do you have a feel is, uh, it, there's probably no way to really know. Do you have a feel for how big the, the original population of bluebirds was before, before they uh, were extirpated on the islands? Um, I don't. And we don't really have that kind of data. The assumption is that they were probably never here in very large numbers to start with. Um, okay. So this is really the kind of the northern extent of their range mm -hmm. um, is the San Juan Islands and then up into southeastern uh, Vancouver Island. And so as with any species, when you get to, you know, the extent of your ranges, far north, far south, you know, east, west, whatever, um, the, the, the population, um, you know, is just, is just smaller. And sure. so, um, so our, you know, my, my guess is that it, it, they probably weren't, you know, very abundant. There are some anecdotal reports of, you know, um, you know, older islanders, uh, uh, early settlers saying that, you know, they were fairly common um, in the farm, you know, the clearings and valleys mm -hmm. in, in central San Juan Island. But yeah, we don't, we don't know for sure um, how many were here. I'm assuming that the extirpation on the island was the similar problem with bluebirds throughout the Americas, North America, where house sparrows and European starlings introduced from afar outcompeted them for nest cavities, or do you think it was something different? No, I think that was definitely a factor. The last, you know, kind of sightings of bluebird, western bluebirds in the islands um, were from the 1960s, and that kind of pretty much coincided with when starlings and uh, house sparrows had, you know, gotten themselves established out here. And, you know, obviously, as with a lot of cavity nesting species, it's, it's a number of factors, uh, such as, you know, general loss of habitat, loss of the natural cavities that they need for nesting, 
And then, you know, when you have the addition of these aggressive non-native birds um, that can easily outcompete our, our native cavity nesting birds for, you know, what cavities are left, then it's just, it's just hard for them to, to keep reproducing. Yeah, very cool. Well, it sounds like you're making headway. What sort of population do you think I mean, I'm sure you have a pretty good idea. How many yeah. birds, how many birds or how many pairs are actually nesting on San Juan now? Or do you expect each year now? Yeah. So we have, you know, I got to tell you, Ed, this is probably my least favorite question, mm-hmm. only because it always sounds like such a dismal number. Um, so, um, you know, especially after doing, you know, we're coming into our, our gosh, what is this? Our 14th field season, 15th field season. We have eight pairs, so 16 adults that are mm-hmm. nesting, breeding. Mm-hmm. I also have probably another um, at least half dozen solo males on okay. the island that are without partners. Okay. That, that may be attributed to, it was kind of an interesting uh, year last year where it seemed like the sex ratio was, was uh, skewed till you know, towards males. And since the males have the higher nest site fidelity, you know, they return from migration. Um, Mm -hmm. They're, they're going to come back to the same places that they nested. So my sense is if there were other females on this Island, those males would have found them by now. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a high hopes that they're going to be establishing unique territories more likely they will be maybe trying to usurp <laughs> one of the other breeding males. Maybe try to uh, get one of those females to do a second clutch with them, huh? Yes, exactly. And that's, that's the good news is that, you know, these, these birds do tend to put out um, most often, you know, it's very common for them to be double clutching. Um, I have an all-star breeding female that I'm so grateful has returned for her fourth breeding season here on the island, who habitually is a triple clutcher. Oh, wow. um, of course, she's getting up in years now, so I don't know. I don't know how she'll, she'll do this year, but, but I was so happy to see her back because she's, she's one of, yeah, she was one of my favorites. Very cool. So, uh, you know, I have a feel for bluebirds, but I, I purposely didn't uh, read uh, Birds of the World on Bluebirds before I yeah. talked to you. So it would be fresh when you tell me some things. Uh, how, what is the lifespan typically of bluebirds? How many eggs in a nest? How many, you said two or three, cl- two, two clutches is pretty typical. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, how many young, four, five, six? Yeah, so um, I guess typical lifespan is, you know, five years or so. You know, it's a my migratory bird, so of course it's it's got a lot of perils to deal with. And uh, usual clutch is um, between five and seven eggs. And um, all of my nests right now have at least six eggs. I have one nest with seven eggs in them right now, and we've had very high success rate with um, with all the the hatching, um, the birds making it to fledging. And so I'm, I'm anticipating that, you know, good, a good number of those birds are going to survive at least until they fledge. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you produce, oh, 50 or hundred bluebirds a year. I mean, I'm yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, the, the hope would be that uh, over time, your population will grow. Uh, right. Do you have a feel for 
what's keeping it from growing? Do you have a feel it's, you know, the perils of making it out to an island, or the perils on the wintering sites, or, or I, I don't know, what, what do you think? All of those things. Yeah. And to answer your first question that, yeah, like a sort of a typical or what it seems to be a typical number of fledglings that I band every year is, is between like 70 and 90. And, uh, but you've got to think about the statistics of the numbers of these birds that will actually survive till their sure. adulthood. And it's about 20% survival rate. Okay. And they breed the next year, do they, or do they, wait? they do, do they miss a yep. year? Yep. Nope. They'll be able to breed in their second year. Okay. I mean, you know, intuitively, you know, that all of these uh, passerines that uh, have a whole bunch of babies, I mean, if, if there wasn't a high mortality, we'd be ankle deep in whatever species. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, yes. logic tells you that uh, they don't have all those babies because they expect them all to survive. Exactly. They, and they that's, have all that's, those babies, so some of them will survive. Exactly. And that's that's the life strategy, especially of a migratory migratory bird is just to put put a lot of put a lot of young out there and just hope that that some of them make it back and it it is interesting you know how closely that that statistic really really holds true you know as i as i track where these returning birds what nests they originated from it's like yep one from every nest (laughs) so it it it's a hard to think about thing to think about when you're banding them and you're wondering which is which one's going to be the lone survivor but Anyways, you asked about the perils and, you know, we're feeling fairly good about what's, what's happening on the, on the breeding territory here in the islands, because the rate of fecundity and, and, you know, uh, juvenile survivorship is, is closely matching the source population down Mm -hmm. at JBLM. So that indicates that this reintrodu- reintroduced population is behaving similarly. Mm-hmm. So, so then we need to think about, you know, what, what's happening perhaps once they leave the nest box and what, what kind of, you know, mortalities are they facing? And is there something along the migratory pathway that, you know, they're running into? Is there something in the wintering grounds that is maybe you know, causing problems for, you know, them to make their return journey. And, and those are just things we can only speculate on and, and not really know, you know, have any firm answers. I'm sure you haven't, I mean, you don't have the funds and resources to do, you know, GPS tracking of these birds or anything like we that. We don't, do we don't. We've talked about it over the years, but it, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's um, immensely time consuming. And, and it's a big deal. It's a big to deal. Do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Kathleen, I'm going to kind of get a little bit away from the Bluebird Reintroduction Project. Are you a birder in general or are you a, a naturalist who got this job or how did you come to be doing this? Yeah. So, um, well, like I said, I work for the San Juan Preservation Trust. And when I was approached, I'm, I'm the stewardship manager there. And, and what that means is that I I manage a lot of our, our natural areas that we protected and also do, you know, restoration work. And this was kind of the first time that our uh, organization, you know, our, we're a land trust where, mm-hmm. you know, our mission is, is protecting, protecting land and, and caring for the land that, that we, we protect. And at the time, this was a really, really new kind of project for 
the trust to take on. Sure. We've never done any real species specific recovery project like this. And um, fortunately I was able to, to convince my executive director at the time and, and our board and, and, and get a lot of support from within the organization to, to take this project on. Of course, if they'd known that I would still be, you know, working on this 15 years later, perhaps they, you know, might have, you know, reconsidered the commitment. But, you know, I think, my, you know, my enthusiasm for it really stemmed from, you know, I've been a lifelong naturalist and um, my love for birds in particular was honed uh, when I worked for a period of time for the Paws Wildlife Center um, in Linwood. And we did, you know, obviously wildlife rehabilitation. And, you know, really my, the favorite part of my work there was the work we did with songbirds. And I think that's, that's when I just really decided that, you know, I was just absolutely fascinated with these creatures. And so when people ask me if I'm a birder, <laughs> it's, it's really funny because hopefully your listeners won't, won't bristle at this, but I don't consider myself a birder in that I don't, I absolutely love to observe birds. I love to be around them. I love to listen for them. I love to learn about them. I love to watch their behaviors. I don't keep lists. I don't post on eBird. <laughs> and, you know, I think part of that is is maybe sort of a reaction to um to technology and maybe not wanting to feel like i'm i'm a slave to you know having to make posts on ebird all the time um but anyone that i think i think knows me well knows that that you know birds are a particular passion of mine and certainly when i travel and i go anywhere that's what i'm doing um i might be there for other purposes but looking and watching for birds are always part of that, even if I'm not keeping a life list. You sound like a birder to me. You know, <laughs> it, it, that there, are, there are birders who are listers. There are birders who are avid students of behavior. There are photographers. Mm -hmm. There mm -hmm. are uh, bird feeder watchers. There are, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want this to be an exclusive club of ours. I want it to be in, <laughs> encompass, uh, encompass all types of people who are passionate about uh, conservation and birds and that sort of thing. So I think you are a perfect guest for the podcast. <laughs> Shake it up a little bit here. That's good. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a, I'm a birder, but I, I'm not a lister, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. Okay. Uh, in terms of uh, challenges to this project that you're doing, are the, are the challenges primarily logistical or biological and just uh, being on the edge of the bluebird's range or is, is it funding? What do you, what do you, what would you say the, the big challenges that you face are? Well, before I launch into the challenges, maybe first I just want to say what, maybe what gives me hope and yeah. um, what gives me, what gets me excited to do this year after year. And I'm really, uh, so re reintroduction projects like this are definitely not for the faint of heart. I mean, it takes, it takes a lot of commitment for many, many years to make this um, happen. 
And even this far into it, I still don't start the end, the beginning of every season saying, oh, it's going to be a success. We've made it happen. You know, I start the beginning of every season just feeling like, wow, is, are these guys going to come back? Are, are we going to have the numbers? Are, are they really going to have this toehold here again? Um, that said, I've been so um, uplifted by other people and in, in the numbers of people in this community that have partnered with us on this project. Um, most of these birds are nesting on private property. And so I've got a huge network of private landowners that are nest box hosts. Um, I'll have another small army of volunteers who are, you know, watching the activeness, who are doing house sparrow control, who are, you know, being, you know, my boots on the ground and my, you know, binoculars in the air when, when I can't, I can't be there. And, and they're excited about it. And, and so when I see that level of excitement within our community, it, that's what gives me hope that these animals may actually have a chance. The challenges are that I really think compared to when the bloopers were here last, you know, the face of our islands has changed a lot and um, they've lost the oak, you know, the oak woodlands that they're more, you know, commonly associated with, especially um, down in Puget Trough through the Willamette Valley. You know, we've lost our oak woodlands here. We have, really we really don't have anything that you could characterize as as oak woodlands or oak savanna left in the islands we have you know some remnant areas but there's there's nothing there's not a lot of it left um so there's a big been been a big alteration to their habitat um so they're in sort of a secondary habitat so they are i mean the good news for bluebirds is that they're 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 generalists Mm-hmm. They can adapt to other situations and they've learned to adapt to um, agricultural areas, uh, golf courses, to, you know, neighborhoods. So they're finding other areas as long as the, ha- the structure, the habitat structure can support, you know, their foraging activities. And if there's, you know, not, you know, cavities available for them to nest in. So for those of us who might not be as uh, scientifically inclined, uh, I know they need cavities to nest in, and I know they sort of like a fairly open habitat. What, what, is the, what, what structure are you, are you talking about? What does it take to be bluebird habitat besides a box? Yeah, so um, bluebirds are insectivores, and they feed um, uh, glean insects primarily from the ground. And so if you're a bluebird and you're looking for something, you know, crawling on the ground, having short grasses with areas of clear, you know, dirt, dirt areas um, around where you can easily pick out insects is helpful. Um, It also, shorter grasses keep, don't allow predators like, uh, you know, feral cats and those kinds of things to, to ambush you. Mm -hmm. And the grasses that you know were associated in oak woodlands were were these kinds of grasses they were Mm -hmm. you know shorter short bunch grass exactly and so so you know they've evolved kind of foraging in those kinds of habitats so that's what they're looking for so you know a mown lawn (laughs) may serve under an oak you know an oak tree or or along a fence line um will serve some of those same 
uh, characteristics. It'll give them the short grass to feed in. It'll give them a low story perch for them to come back after they pick up that insect off the ground. They'll fly up mm -hmm. to a, a low hanging branch or to a fence post or something like that to to eat their their insect. So so open structure is what they need. You won't find these birds in closed canopy forest or riparian areas. Sure. So uh, I am excited for you guys. It sounds like it sounds like this could work. Uh, sounds like you know you need another fifty years. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm joking yeah. a little bit. You need time. I mean, you need these uh, birds to to have a big a banner year with a big uh, returning success rate once or twice in a row to just explode your population. Yeah. So yeah. You need a break. And you need and a break. And so. So I guess I never, I never really got back to um, the challenges. And so, you know, um, the positives are that they're generalists, that, you know, they adapt to uh, artificial cavities, you know, readily. So those are all good things. Mm -hmm. um, the challenges are that, and I had started to say this, um, is that they, I think the the, the, the suite of species on this, on these islands now um, has changed, you know, as more and more people have moved here, as more and more land is getting developed and cleared for homes, all the things that love to live alongside humans come along with it. So raccoons, jays, yeah, yeah um, well, we don't have jays on San Juan Island. They are on Orcas, but we do not have them on San Juan Island. Oh, that's a plus. Um, so there's one less. <laughs> Um, but we have, um, we do have uh, raccoons and they are an issue, obviously cats, uh, whether feral or, you know, cats that, you know, folks live, you know, let outside or, um, or, and the house sparrows. And it's, it's kind of that triumvirate that uh, regularly wreak havoc on these guys, in addition to all the other perils like kestrels, windows, you know, things like that. Sure. So you, know, you just need to keep at it. It sounds like, sounds like it could work. Uh, are you continuing to supplement your population from JBLM or are you on a maintenance phase now? We are in maintenance phase. We stopped translocations three years ago. So we did, we did five years um, starting in 2007. We did five years. We took a two year break and the population plummeted but that was um also coincident with two cold very cold and wet springs mm. where a lot of cavity nesting species um suffered uh not just bluebirds and mm -hmm. um because these really cold temperatures came in when they had young in the nest and a lot of the young perished and so that was unfortunate timing um so we decided to bring back the uh the translocations we started we did that again for another five years and we are now in our third year post translocation and the population is continuing to grow oh, cool yeah even you know without adding to the the population it is growing on its own it's growing very slowly but it is growing very cool well, Kathleen, I am super excited about this project. I, I learned about you guys uh, from one of your volunteers. I was uh, I was uh, scoping out some shorebirds at a little, uh, I forget the name of the beach, but it's one of the beaches on, uh, on San Juan. Bay. 
false day. Yeah, and yeah. one of your volunteers came up. She says, what are you seeing? She didn't have a scope. She had bins. What are you seeing? And I thought I had black belly plover and dunlin, mm. some least sandpipers. Mm. She was all excited about it. And we talked a little bit and she said, well, you know, we've got bluebirds here now. I said, really? I haven't seen a bluebird here. She, she kind of told me where there was some boxes that might be occupied or half a mile from there, I think. And mm. I cruised over and put the car on the side of the road and instantly had a male bluebird on top of a box. I said, wow, she was right, cool. Uh, so I, I got my San Juan County, I am a lister, uh, San Juan <laughs> County Western Bluebird tick. That's, that's uh, that was great. exciting. And bluebirds are such a incredible bird. I mean, they're just, they're beautiful. They sing, they, they've got everything you could hope to see in a bird. They're beautiful and uh, you know, gentle sort of feeling birds. They're pretty cool. Uh, I had Neil Paprocki on as a guest uh, a while ago. He's a, a PhD student at the University of Idaho, and and he also does video documentaries. You ought to get a hold of him and see if he'd do one of you guys' project. That would be a big plus. Uh, but anyway, he did uh, one on Al Larson, the Bluebird Man from uh, mm -hmm. from Idaho. Is a mm -hmm. fabulous, uh, fabulous uh, video, uh, mm -hmm. and. Uh, anyway, so I, you know, bluebirds are very charismatic. They are, and and you know, if, if you're going to do a reintroduction, you might as well um, do a, a non-contentious species. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, it, it was an easy sell for for the community to uh, you know wrap their arms around. Um, and and I, you know, nothing makes me happier than when people just see them. You know. And, and, you know, send me a little note or something and saying, oh my gosh, I went out for a walk and I saw, I saw one and, you know, I've never laid eyes on one before and they're so beautiful. And, and, you know, I just, I just hope that those are, that will just be commonplace again. And um, that be, people will be able to see these birds um, um, as part of our ecosystem here on, on, in the islands where, you know, they belong and, and, um, and I hope that, you know, people can just continue to, to have those kinds of experiences with them. Well, it sounds like they will for at least a while. And that's fabulous. I appreciate the work you're doing. It's really great. If someone wanted to reach out and support this program, how would they, is, is there enough for profits you can donate to? Or is there a way to do that? How, how, how do you guys get your money? Yeah, so like I said, I work for the San Juan Preservation Trust, and we are we are a nonprofit organization, and um, would happily accept any donations um, to to help fund this project. Obviously, this is this is um, part of the work that I do. I, I wear a lot of different hats with the organization, but this is this is one of the projects I'm overseeing. So any donations could be. Um, earmarked towards the Bluebird project and um, would help help me with with making sure that um, you know we're we're able to get out into the field every year and, and do the things that we do. Of course if anyone is listening that's actually from San Juan Island um, and they want to get involved they 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 can contact me and and I can I can plug people in in various ways. And I believe they can get get a hold of you at that sjpt.org website. That's correct. Cool. I'll put a link to that in the podcast notes so people can find it if they want to. Uh, reintroduction projects have been terrific. There have been some fabulous success stories. I had Puffin Pete uh, worked with the uh, with the uh, Atlantic Puffin reintroduction projects and uh, 
And nice. uh, it, it for many years, that's been a spectacular success. Yeah. You know, yeah. Peregrine reintroductions have been sure. you know, greatly successful. And yeah. uh, Bluebirds have, have been a great success throughout much of their range with, uh, you know, Bluebird trails and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, Eastern Bluebirds, Mountain Bluebirds and Western Bluebirds all. Right. Uh, right. When, when my kids were young, we used to go to the uh, Audubon uh, annual camp, camp out at Weenus Creek. Uh, the Washington Audubon Society had a camp out there. And one of the things that they did, the Yakima Audubon Society supported uh, a bluebird trail all along the Tatum Road. They had almost 200 boxes. And nice. it, 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 when you went, if you had kids, or I guess probably if you didn't have kids too, you could volunteer to, to go check out 10 of those boxes, take a little class on how to do it. And then you'd go find, we got boxes 99 through you know, 107 or something or whatever. Yeah. And you'd go and you'd go off and you'd open the box, you'd count the eggs and say how many of the young were there and where they were hatched and all this stuff. It was really cool. I mean, yeah. My kids just love that. They still, still remember that. And we actually... You know, for five dollars a year, you could adopt a bluebird box, and uh, and they'd send you a little letter telling how many birds came out of your box every year. It was really fun. Really. Oh, fun. that's great. That's great. I mean, I would love to have the those those kind of numbers here someday. Sure. Um, we do have you know this little army of volunteers that I have out around the islands. Um, you know, one of the ones you met, you know, they're, they're adopting um, one box. <laughs> I mean, I have them check on a number of boxes, but if they're lucky, they'll get one, one of those that will actually be occupied by, by bluebirds. And then if they are, then, you know, that kicks into a, a whole, you know, another level of, of monitoring. But, um, but yeah, you know, obviously I'm familiar with the bluebird trails all around the West and, and, you know, East coast as well. And, um, and, um, you know, that's sort of what we've modeled our program from. And, and uh, you know, I, I hope there's a time when, when people are, are able to monitor several bluebird nests at a, at a time. Well, I don't see why that can't happen. You just need a break. You know, you just yeah. need a break. You need two or three nice, easy winters in a row and some mm -hmm. good breeding success in the spring and uh, get that population to just triple in no time flat or, you know, some 5X or 10X or something like that. You, you need a break. You'll get one. Keep it up. Yeah. Well, hopefully, uh, maybe we'll have a, a house sparrow uh, population crash. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it probably would be unpopular, but uh, yeah, uh, uh, with the Kirtland's warbler, if you if the Kirtland's warbler project in Michigan, they trap uh -huh. the cowbirds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just yeah, they, yeah, they, uh, they trap them and they just disappear at night. You know? Yes, yeah, yeah. So yep. It, it yep. would be harder with with uh, house sparrows, I think, but possible maybe. Well, I have a couple landowners that are really good with a 22 um, mm -hmm. that are taking matters into their own hands and yeah. um, they, they want those bluebirds to succeed. And, um, and we're using, we're definitely using other methods. We're trying to, trying to get to them before, you know, they have any success in, in even nesting. So we're doing a lot of nest um, removal. We've experimented some with oiling eggs. Um, and so, you know, those, those techniques seem to be working pretty well. Good for you. Good for you. Well, I will uh, say yay, yay, Western bluebirds and boo hiss house sparrows. <laughs> Does that sound <laughs> good? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, it's hard to be, um, it's hard to pick and choose and be speciest, you know, yeah, um, I hear but, you. but uh, we've, we've, we've changed the rules of the game so much that, um, you know, unfortunately, if we if we want to maintain some some biodiversity on our landscape, we we have to uh, 
we have to help them along a little bit more than we anticipated. We do. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for being my guest today. I appreciate it. And I will let you know when this episode gets published so that you will have access to it. Thanks again. That's wonderful. You bet, Ed. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, take care. Well, thanks for listening. I learned so much today from Kathleen. How cool that she is working on a project, really a pioneering project, of bringing a migratory songbird back to its native range after being extirpated, especially on an island like San Juan Island. Really cool stuff. They're having some success there. I'll make sure I put a link in the podcast notes to the San Juan Island Bluebird Restoration Project website where you can learn more about that and can contribute and support that project if you choose to. Also, I write a blog post for each episode on the birdbanner.com website. And in this blog post, I'll make sure I put both links to appropriate resources. You can learn how to build a bluebird box. You can learn more about bluebird trails, how to find bluebirds in your own in your own home area. And I will embed the video of the bluebird man from Idaho that I linked to on a previous episode so you can get to see some mountain bluebirds there. I'll also put some photographs from both western and mountain bluebirds on the blog post too so you get a feel for what they look like. And thanks so much for listening. Really fun episode today. I appreciate your support. And until next time, good birding. Good day.